Awesome, thank you so much. Well, good evening. How you doing? Good. My name is Jimmy. I, uh, it's a real pleasure to get to be with you guys today. It's a real pleasure to get to, it's an honor to get to come and speak to you on your first service of 2018. Um, I've always actually wanted to come and visit you guys. I first met uh, Adam at Bible College a number of years ago. Him and I were both studying, I think it was the Gospel of John in Greek, and I was sitting next to this guy I'd never met before, and he seemed pretty cool because he was wearing cool clothes. Um, and I looked over at him, and his Bible was full of underlines and circles and highlights and notes, and I was like, Oh man, that's what a real Christian looks like when they're like, and so I watched him for a couple of weeks, like, oh man, could I ever write in my own Bible? How, is that sacrilege? I got no idea. And like, and, but I always wanted to. And then so I finally plucked up the courage to like make an underline in the Gospel of John. And then I was like, what have I done? And I didn't do anything in it for another few weeks. And then I didn't care after that. But, um, that was my first experience of Adam. Um, and then, then, yeah, we led worship together one time. I totally forgot about that. And that you can sing. That's really cool. Awesome. Um, it's really great to be with you. Do you want to open your Bibles up to Psalm chapter 2? Uh, I don't know really, I don't think, uh, any of you. Um, but it's really good to be here. Uh, like, sorry, is that me? Am I doing something wrong by, no? It's all good? Okay, cool. Um, uh, like what Ben said, I've, I'm married. We've got three kids. We've got a photo of my family actually here um, to prove that I am actually married. We've been married for about 11 years. This is my wife, Kirsty. Um, our three kids. Our oldest uh, girl is, uh, our oldest daughter, our oldest child is, her name is Noah. Uh, N-O-A. It is a boy's name, but we chose to give it to her. Um, just so you know, like, did I hear him right? Yes, he did hear him right, right hear me right. Um, her name is Noah. Then my son, Shepherd, is the one on the floor. Then Banjo is the one that Kirsty is holding. Um, just to let you give you guys a bit of insight into who I am. Uh, people often meet me and then they'll meet Kirsty and they'll say, wow, Jimmy must have a great personality. Uh, because I'm one of those guys who's totally just punching above his weight when it comes to the wonderful woman I got to marry. And so um, that's my family. Yeah, Psalm chapter 2. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we are going to be walking through this text fairly rapidly. This this passage, this psalm, is a it's a dense psalm in the sense that there's just so much crammed into it. It's like jam-packed full of really, really good stuff. And uh, I'm looking forward to preaching it with you guys today. Uh, one of the things about Psalm 2 is that it's loaded up. It's kind of like a seedbed of a whole lot of ideas, a whole lot of themes, a whole lot of thoughts that don't really sprout, that don't really bloom until the New Testament. The Psalm is all about Jesus. Now, the person who wrote the Psalm didn't think or didn't know that they were writing about Jesus at the time, but it contains these ideas that come up in the life of Jesus. And it comes up not only in the Gospels, but also in Paul's letters, in um, Revelation as well. Very, very important psalm. Uh, one of the interesting things about the psalm is there's all these titles given to Jesus. So he's, uh, he's called the King, he's called Messiah, he's called um, the Son of God. And Psalm 2 is the only place where those three important titles to designate who Jesus is, Psalm 2 is the only place where those three titles all come together in the one place. So it's a very, very important psalm. It sets out to demonstrate that God alone is king. 
Any person who stands in rebellion against God does so to their own demise. God is in control even when it doesn't seem like it. Now, I think this is timely for us. If, if you're a Christian in this room, I think this is a timely psalm for us to read because we need to know that God is actually king and God is in control. 2016 was probably going to go down, it's probably going to go down in history as the year of celebrity deaths. I'm not sure if you have Facebook or you're watching that towards the end of 2016, but for some strange reason, and I'm not sure if it was just that we all were paying attention this day, I don't know, but a whole lot of famous people died in 2016. I don't know what 2017 is going to be remembered as. I don't think that there was, I haven't picked up on any trends that people are calling it, but I do believe that 2017 has been a monumental year, particularly for Christians in Australia. I'm not sure where you landed on the postal vote with the same-sex marriage stuff, whether you voted yes or no. I'm not here to kind of push you one direction or the other. But what we can all agree on, I'm sure, regardless of how you voted, was that is that the Christian voice in our culture has changed. The way that we speak into culture, the way that the culture receives, the way that the church speaks into culture has changed drastically. I believe that we are entering an increasingly, uh, an increasingly, um, an increasing time of persecution. I believe that this has uh, been coming for a long time. And there's going to come a day where we will long for the time that they only called us bigots. I believe that being a Christian and maintaining some kind of social capital in the world is going to be harder and harder to hold those two things together. And I'm not sure what 2017 looks look like for you. I don't know what 2018 is going to look like. But I believe that this time, is going, we're going to look back at it as, as a bit of a landmark to go, whoa, a lot of things have changed there. We live in a society that doesn't want the church to have a voice. We live in a society that doesn't want the Bible or God to determine what is right and wrong. So this psalm is important for us to pay attention to. It's important for us to read and become familiar with it. Fortunately, despite the persecution that I believe is coming, the Bible doesn't leave us unprepared for such things. The mission does not change. Our call to grow in our relationship with God does not change. Our call to make disciples does not change. And our call to live holy lives doesn't change. But what Psalm 2 does is it it talks directly to these kinds of issues. And to give you just a bit of a heads up, Psalm 2 is going to tell us this. God is in control. Even when it seems like he's not. Even when it feels like the whole world is going crazy. Psalm Psalm 2 tells us that God is in control. It's an invitation to us to trust in God, and it calls us to believe that God is in control so that we can relinquish control and not actually have it for ourselves. Now, the context of the Psalm 2 is very important for us to understand. It's a coronation psalm. It was, uh, it's a particular set of words that were spoken to the king of Israel or by the king of Israel or both around the time that they would crown a new king. Whenever a new king came along the scene, whenever they would, uh, someone would, a new person would rise to the throne of Israel, these words were to be used in that particular ceremony. And we're kind of familiar with this stuff, right? Like, if you go to a wedding, you're used to a particular set of words at a wedding. Like, if you go to a wedding and nobody says, I will, 
then you probably didn't go to a wedding. You probably just went to, like, I don't know what you went to, just a weird thing where somebody walked up an aisle and it was odd. If you go to a birthday and nobody sings happy birthday, did you really go to a birthday? Like, we're used to certain words and certain things being said or sung at certain important events. So this is the kind of uh, scene that we're seeing with uh, with Psalm 2. That was meant to be said, meant to be spoken at the coronation of the new king. So let's have a read of it. I'll make some comments as we go, and then we'll wrap it up at the end with a few points. So Psalm 2 says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the the psalmist is asking the question, Why do people come up against God? Why do people come in rebellion against God? Why do they band together in rebellion against him? Why do they do that and thinking that the rebellion carries any weight against God? Because it just doesn't. The culture that we live in says God has no place in society. We don't want God in our schools anymore. We don't want God, we don't want public prayer to be a, a, a thing anymore. We don't want there to be any kind of hint of God or religion or the Bible or the church or Christians telling us what is right or wrong anymore. We don't want that anymore. That's the culture we live in. And it's increasingly becoming that way. And the Psalms is simply saying, why? Not why because he wants to know the reasons behind it or the purpose. He wants, he's saying, why? Because there's no point in coming up against God. As if God is somehow shaken by this. As if God is somehow threatened by this. As if God is somehow going, oh my goodness, I have no idea what to do now because people don't like me anymore. Like that's, the psalmist is saying, hey, God, God's in control here. It goes on in verse 4 to say, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, they don't hold a candle to the Lord. Their combined efforts, all of them together, don't hold a candle to the Lord. It's like as if I was to go up against some great fighter like Muhammad Ali or, or Conor McGregor or somebody like that and start smack-talking them and start saying, I can take you down, I can smash you. Any boxer, any fighter, any person, I'm a big guy. I look menacing and tough. I have the shaved head and the beard because I have no idea how to fight. I'm useless. I once had a, I was at a thing where some guys were like, hey, let's have a boxing match. And I was like, sure, I've never done that before. I put the gloves on and got hit in the ear. And it hurt. It sucks getting punched in the head. I'm not a good fighter. So if I was to go up against anybody who had any kind of experience of any kind of martial arts or boxing or training, any kind of hand-to-hand combat, I would be useless. So to, to, throw my words out there and say, look how good I can, well, look what I can do, all that kind of stuff, it'd be laughable. It's the same thing that's going on here. And just in case they thought that somehow God was weaker because they couldn't see him, God's words are this, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have established rule and authority and might and strength and my kingdom through the king who I've assigned to that place. Moving on, we hear from verse 7, the voice of the earthly king himself. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. 
today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, so these are some of the most theologically rich words that we're going to find in the Bible. I mean, the whole Bible is theologically rich, right? We all know that. But this is like, I'm preaching on Psalm 2, so I've got to say that about Psalm 2. It is really, really full on. And we're going to circle back to these a bit later. But if anything, what these words are trying to emphasize is just how ferocious and mighty and powerful and strong and incredible God is. So I brought along some props with me to make this point a little bit more drastic. Is that okay? You guys good with that? All right. By the way... Playing banjo in church is rad. I wish we did it at our church. I'm just going to use your stool for a moment, if that's okay. I hope I'll, I, I'll be careful with it. So the psalmist has used this language of a potter's vessel and a rod of iron, right? Actually, that's probably going to be better like that. Can you imagine? I mean, you don't have to imagine. You can see it right now. Like if I was to, now I'm not actually going to do it because this isn't my church. I did see a preacher do this once, though. And the things went everywhere. The shards went, the ceramic cup went everywhere. And it was, it was in the carpet for a long time. So I'm not going to do that. But you get the point, right? That in what scenario does a ceramic mug and a mallet come against each other and the mallet loses out? Like, you could line up a thousand of these, a million of these for a million years, and nothing would happen to the mallet over and over again. This is the, this is the image that the psalmist is trying to help us understand. God is not frightened by the world, even though the world bands together, takes counsel together, supports one another, encourages one another against God in rebellion, in direct rebellion against him, even though that's the case. God is not shaken by that at all. God is not. God is in control. This last section is the wonderful warning for this coronation service. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The point of the psalm is to know, help us to know, that regardless of how much it might seem that the enemies of God are powerful and strong and in control, regardless of how helpless the situation is, God is the sovereign king who maintains his sovereignty, his autonomy, and his control over all things. So the question now is, how do we respond when that doesn't seem to be the case. How do we respond to persecution? How do we respond to people in our lives who revile us because of our faith? How do we respond? What do we do in, in our lives where, where things get tougher because we're Christians? A friend of mine, she's a fairly new Christian, and her family said to her, with regards to the postal vote, if you vote no in this, we're not talking to you again. I mean, that's persecution, right? And she came to me. She's like, I've got no idea what to do. And it was a tough situation for her to deal with, to go through. How do you, what do we do in times like this? Well, fortunately for us, Psalm 2 is not just theoretical. It's practical as well. 
There's three things here that I believe Psalm 2 teaches us when this is the case. The first point is this. We need to know the fear of the Lord. The second point is that we need to look upon the Son whom he has sent. And the third point is that we are to take refuge in him. So first of all, we are to know the fear of the Lord. The idea of the fear of God, fearing God, is a strange thing for us to get our heads around because it's a fairly negative term. But the idea behind it is that there is no one as strong and mighty and powerful and sovereign and holy and glorious and wonderful and beautiful and amazing as God. And so our awe, our awe in our sense, in the sense of having awe of something, our awe ought to be directed towards God and not towards anything else. The idea of fearing God means by, by fearing God, I don't have a fear of anything else. Namely, I don't have a fear of anybody else. Because when we think about it, persecution is, the, the substance of persecution is the fear of man. We're afraid of what, what people can do to us. We're afraid of what people can say about us. And if we fear God, if our awe is of God, if our affections are drawn towards him, then they're not going to be drawn towards other people. If they're drawn towards other people, then what people say about us is going to hurt us. What people do to us is going to affect us deeply. And we'll start to change our behavior. We'll start to change the way we act. We'll start to do things that we wouldn't normally do because we want to appease appease those whom we fear. But when we fear God, these things diminish. God doesn't call us to renounce the fear of mankind without fearing God first. God doesn't call us to go away, go around and reject what people say about us without fearing Him first. The the call of the Bible is to fear God and not being consumed, not being hurt, not being crushed by what people say about us and do to us will come as a natural byproduct of fearing God. The first thing that we can take from this is that God has called us to fear him. So we learn the fear of the Lord by looking to his might and glory and strength and holiness and omnipotence and omniscience and all those words that the Bible uses to describe God. We look for that stuff in the Bible. So Jeremiah 32 tells us, It is God who made the heavens and the earth by his great power and by his outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing. Is too hard for God. That's that's awesome, right? Daniel 4 tells us, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? No one can go to God and say, What have you done, God? No one can hold God to account. He is above all things. Job 5 tells us that he does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Friends, we would do well to make 2018 the year that we grow in the fear of the Lord. The year that we don't just go to the Bible because I guess that's what we're going to do because we're Christians. We go to the Bible to say, God, increase my awe of you. God, increase my respect of you. God, increase my fear of you so that I might not be fearful of the things in the earth that seek to crush me, that seek to enslave me. The second thing that I believe this uh, psalm tells us to do is to look to the Son whom he has sent. So if the previous point was about who God is, then this point is about what God has done. 
And God's strategy against these rulers who have come against him is that as he says this in verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So essentially what he's saying here is, I have set a king whom I have decided who will be king. God chose David to be king. God chose David to be the, the, king of, the king of Israel during that time. And God chose David's family and his descendants to be the kings after, after him. God also chose Zion in Jerusalem the capital of, to be the capital of Israel. So when it comes to this king of Israel, even though he is the king of Israel, he is totally subservient to God still. Because God chose who it would be and God chose where they would operate. If somebody comes to me and tells me, this is your job, and this is where you do it, that person's my boss, right? Like, even if my title is called boss, that person is my boss, because they are the ones who have decided that. They're what the psalm is telling us is that God is the one who has elected David to do this. But the psalm also points way, way forward to Jesus. The psalm points way forward to Jesus, because it talks about the Son of God. It is pointing to the fact that God sent his own Son to rule and reign on his behalf. So Romans 1 tells us that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. So, a royal family. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is the true son of God that was promised in Psalm 2. Now, if we're paying attention, we're probably going to ask, but if Jesus was the Son of God, and Psalm 2 was written hundreds of years before Jesus was there and referred to the king then as the Son of God, how does that work? How, does, how is Jesus, how is that king the Son of God? How does that work? Well, I'm glad you asked the question because that's my next point. Uh, in ancient Israel, a king was referred to as a son of God. It was referred to, uh, he was referred to as a son of God to emphasize that uh, no matter how powerful he was, he was always to be subservient to God. And this wasn't just exclusive to Yahweh, to Israel. This was um, for the Romans. They, the Caesars were called sons of God. This is why in Mark chapter 10, I think it is, sorry, Mark chapter 15, when Jesus is dying on the cross, a Roman centurion is standing before Jesus, looking at the cross and looking at the way that Jesus died, and says, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, that Roman centurion, had, who had no Hebrew background, wasn't making some kind of statement about the Son of God, uh, that Jesus being the Son of God in the sense that he's, Jesus, he's God's offspring. Yes, there is that, and we shouldn't deduce, we shouldn't reduce that, because that helps us understand the incredible, intricate, and beautiful, and wonderful, and intimate love in relationship between God the Son and God the Father within the Holy Trinity. I'm not saying that's not the case. But the deeper thing, or not the deeper thing, but another thing that's been added onto here, into the Son of God title, is that Jesus is the King. By calling Jesus the Son of God isn't just saying that he is God's Son, but saying that he is the King the one who was sent to rule. So what does this all mean? It means that God has sent Jesus, his own son, to be the son of God, to be the king. And his rule knows no end. His reign is forever. He will never be dethroned. Jesus is alive and he is the king. 
I don't know what 2018 is going to hold for you, but may we know that Jesus is the king. He sits on his throne and nothing is ever going to change that. And that's really good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the king. And he's come to establish his kingdom. He's come to rule so that other things won't rule us, so that we don't get ruled by other things. Why is this good news? Because of the kind of king he is. If we look at the Gospels, at the kind of king that Jesus is, we see that he is the servant king, the suffering king, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So look at Jesus at the well in John 4, talking to the woman from Samaria. He's talking to this woman who's socially isolated, morally bankrupt. Look at the way he treats her with dignity and raises her up. Surely this tells us that no matter how isolated we are from others, Jesus is near. No matter how bankrupt we are in our morals, Jesus steps in and remedies his grace to us in love and in tenderness. If Jesus is the king who would do that for her, then Jesus is the king who does this for us. Let's look at Zacchaeus. Look at Jesus as he looks up at Zacchaeus up a tree. This is a man who has made his riches, who's become very, very rich by cheating his own, own countrymen out of their possessions. Look at how Jesus selects him out of the crowd and decides to share a meal with Zacchaeus. Surely this tells us that no matter how far gone we think we are, it's not too far for Jesus. If Jesus is the king who would do that for Zacchaeus, then Jesus is the king who does that for you and I. Look at Jesus on the beach as he makes breakfast for his friends. Peter in particular, who betrayed Jesus, who denied him not once but three times. Peter who feared people, even a little servant girl over the God of the universe. He's treated to breakfast on the beach by Jesus. Surely this tells us that no matter how significant or treacherous or personal our sin is, we cannot outsend God. He has infinite love and grace and mercy towards us. If Jesus is the king who would do that for Peter, then Jesus is the king who would do that for us. This is the servant king whom we serve. And it's wonderful, wonderful news. So the last point is this. Take refuge in him. The picture that Psalm 2 paints is of this ferocious king who's mighty, who's like a mallet. And when mugs come against him, he smashes them. That's the kind, he's this big, ferocious, powerful God that speaks of his judgment, speaks of his, uh, of his uh, white-hot fury against sin in the world. And we might be forgiven to think that this is kind of a bit of a scary psalm. It's kind of scary for us because when we think about it, if, if we were to be cast into the sun, into the psalm, then you and I, every single one of us in this room, would be amongst the kings and the nations and the rulers and the peoples who rage against God. That's where we would be. Without Jesus Christ reconciling us to God, that's where we would be. We deserve the punishment of God. We deserve the, his punishment against sin. But Psalm 2 doesn't end like that. It ends with what we can only call a beatitude. It says, blessed are, all, blessed are those who take refuge in him. 
One of my favorite scenes in any movie is the scene between King Kong and the three dinosaurs in Peter Jackson's King Kong. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It came out like in the early 2000s, so there's been another Kong movie released since then. I haven't seen that one. I don't know if it's good or not, but the King Kong I'm talking about is the Peter Jackson version. And there's this crazy, crazy scene where it's King Kong, the great ape, the big gorilla, and he's fighting three Tyrannosaurus Rexes. So as a guy, I'm like, yes, that's all the things I want in a TV show. That's all the things I want in a movie. Just big gorillas punching dinosaurs in the face. It's excellent. Um, and they're fighting over this woman named Anne Darrow who King Kong had a little bit earlier taken as his, uh, not as a slave, but as his captive. And she had escaped from King Kong. And as she's escaping him, as she's running away from him, she encounters these dinosaurs who want to eat her for lunch. And these dinosaurs are about to attack her, and she screams like anybody would in that situation. And then you hear King Kong, and he comes bursting through the trees and hitting his chest, and it's excellent. And there's like they're falling off cliffs and falling down things and they're like swinging on vines and King Kong's is punching dinosaurs in the face and they're biting his shoulders and it's this huge, awesome, incredible, spectacular scene that you're just like, whoa, this is, this is incredible. Like, it's absolutely amazing. And the idea of the scene is to show that so who is fighting for who and for what way? So the dinosaurs are fighting for Anne Darrow because they want to eat her. King Kong is fighting for, he, for, fighting for her because he wants to protect her. And King Kong in his fury is punching and he's thrashing and in his might and in his rage and in his anger, he's just destroying everything. And then it ends up with this scene where Anne Darrow accidentally finds herself. She's still not sure at this stage who she should trust between a gorilla and a dinosaur. To be totally honest, I wouldn't know who to trust in that moment either, so that's not a comment on Andero. But she finds herself standing there, and there's he, King Kong's already killed two of the dinosaurs, and then there's one T-Rex, and he's like stalking her, about to eat her, and then King Kong lands on the other side of Andero, and he's like, Rah! and he's like, all that stuff. And Andero, in this moment, decides to side with King Kong. She discovers, she realizes that King Kong is fighting for her good. And even though she's just witnessed this gorilla destroy and bring destruction to everything he's come up against, she looks at the, at the dinosaur who is stalking her and she starts to back towards the gorilla, towards her safety. The only place of safety both from the dinosaur and from the, the menacing anger, angry fury of, the, of King Kong is actually close to King Kong. See, what Psalm 2 is telling us, it's giving us this idea of this God who's not as ridiculous as King Kong, but this God who is ferocious and powerful and mighty and strong and brings his swift... There will come a day where God will bring his judgment upon mankind. And Psalm 2 ends like this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The only place of safety from the wrath of God is in God himself. See, when Jesus died on the cross and he hung there, taking that punishment 
taking, absorbing God's wrath upon himself. He opens this invitation to you and I to abide in him, to come and be in him, to come and dwell in him, to come close to him, and to come and be protected by him from the judgment upon the sin that we so clearly deserve. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that Jesus has presented an invitation to us to step into his kingdom and be God's kingdom people, to be God's children and to be removed from the, for the, and for the wrath of God to be removed from us. This is the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in God because the only place of safety from his wrath is actually close to him. The people who are safe from the swinging arm of judgment of the Lord are those who abide in Jesus. The invitation for today to you and to I is to abide in Jesus. Now here's the thing. Being the first service of the year, looking down the barrel of 2018, it's quite convenient for me to say, let's start this well, let's do this, let's accept this invitation of love and mercy and, and grace The reality for us is that resolutions come and go, but that invitation is there tonight, and the invitation is actually there tomorrow as well. There's an invitation to you from Jesus to come and abide in him that's going to come to you tomorrow. And then on Tuesday, there's going to be an invitation from Jesus Christ to come and abide in him, to be excused from the wrath of God. And then on Wednesday, there's going to be an invitation from Jesus Christ to come and abide in him and to escape the wrath of God. And then on Thursday, and then on Friday, and then on Saturday, and then on Sunday, we're going to be back here at church, and we're going to hear the gospel again. And we're going to hear, we need to hear the gospel over and over again, and to accept that invitation from Jesus to come and abide in him, to come close to him, to come close to the king of the universe who we're called to fear, and yet we are called to come and take comfort in as well. This is the wonderful God that we serve. So draw near to the servant king who loves you and who laid down his life for you. Let's pray. Those words that we sang earlier, Jesus, thank you that you rescued me. God, our Savior, you you rescued us. You rescued us from sin. You rescued us from shame. You rescued us from judgment. And you rescued us to yourself as well, Lord. Thank you, Father, that we, uh, that we can receive that invitation by faith. By simply coming to you and saying, God, I need you. I, I need to be saved. I, I'm not going to trust myself to save myself anymore. I'm just going to trust you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that that invitation is there and it's secured by your blood and not by our efforts. It's not done by our works or by strength or by might or anything, Lord, except by your spirit. Thank you that you saved us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't... uh, It's not upon our merit that we wait to come to you. Thank you, Jesus, that... You save sinners. Those who are in the, in rebellion against you, those of you, those who, who rage.
against you, Lord. Those who come against you thinking we don't need you. We do this every day and, and you extend mercy and you extend that invitation for us to come and be in you again. Thank you, Lord, that you're not waiting for us to become better versions of ourselves before you'll rescue us. But you rescue us in mercy. You rescue us in your grace. You restore us to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we find ourselves in deep, wonderful relationship with you. God, where our, where our hearts are refusing that invitation, Father, would you come and just draw us towards you again? Would you stir up our affections that we might just want you more and more? Would you, would you pull our, our, our beings, pull everything that we are, Lord, towards you because we cannot pursue you without your spirit directing us? Thank you that you are a God of salvation who rescues helpless sinners and you restore them to yourself. Thank you for being the king who rules. We love you, Jesus. Amen.